You're listening to The Gateway Church. For more information, please go online to thegatewaychurch.com. So what we just participated in is a part of this uh, ancient rhythm. You see, the, um, the community from which these scriptures come would be a part of a predominantly oral community, and that, that's uh, to say this is an oral tradition. So these stories would have been told by word of mouth. People would have memorized these texts, and communities would have stood in honor of God's word coming to them, and they would have received them. And so what a, what a beautiful picture it is, 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 is like as we awkwardly stand receiving the word, we are actually entering into the rhythms of people f- of millennia past. And, and of these people, we actually have more than just what we see in the New Testament. We have the roots of the New Testament that stretch all the way back to page one of the Bible. And we're, we're going to reach back into the Old Testament this morning as we make our way to Jesus. So if you would... Would you open up your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 13? You heard me correctly. Trust me, we will get to Jesus of Nazareth and the gospel according to Mark. Uh, But as you flip and tap your way on over to Leviticus, uh, which um, that's where most of our Bible reading plans like go to die. Uh, It's the third book into your scriptures. Um, You see, my hope is this morning that as we make these few stops in the Hebrew Bible, uh, is that we would see that Jesus is the one redefining the terms of who and how we enter into God's presence. That Jesus is the one redefining the terms. And so I'm going to read the passage in Leviticus 13, and I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get after this because we have uh, quite a bit of ground to cover. Leviticus chapter 13, starting in verse 45. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. God, apart from you moving in our hearts, um, there is nothing that will stir our affections for Jesus. So we ask that you who are able, that you would make us into the people whom you desire. That is people who are alive to God in Christ and filled with your spirit. So we just pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be clear, that your name would be exalted, that your name would be shared amongst the congregation of your people, and that we, your people, would praise your name amidst all of our circumstances. Spirit, would you move through me and the power of your word to lead this church to Jesus? It's in your strong and saving name, Jesus, that we come and we ask for you to lead us this morning. Amen. So if you're, if you're new to the library of scriptures, what we just read is this three millennia old text. It comes from these people called the Israelites or the Hebrew people. And this is this ancient nomadic tribe. And at this time, they're wandering around the deserts in what is now known as modern-day Saudi Arabia. And at this time, uh, they are uh, these people who are, are, have been led out of slavery by God. And yet, they are also trying to know what it is to be with God. And, and more specifically, this text here in Leviticus 13, it, it, it's this uh, it's this this priestly tech manual. So this text is nested within this priestly tech manual, and this priestly tech manual, which is Leviticus, is nested within the Torah, or what we would understand as the first five books of the Bible. And while these stories are foundational stories for the people of Israel, it's how they found their rootedness in the world. It's how they uh, like made their identity known. More often than not, what we see in the late modern West uh, here in 2020, what we often see is a bunch of loosely connected poems and uh, stories that are telling people what to do and what not to do. And so when we come to a text like Leviticus, it can feel quite odd to us. And we are partially right. The Torah is interested in God's people living uh, 
under his covenant. It is interested in them living these morally upright lives, and it is composed of various genres. So there's narrative, and there's prose, and there's poetry. But we would be wrong to think that these foundational stories are just a bunch of loosely connected stories, a loosely connected moral teachings. Because even in Leviticus, we see that there's a great measure of intentionality. There's this symmetry in the book. And, and, and it, looks, it looks something like this. You see, uh, when you come to the book, the book of Leviticus, there's this crescendo moment at the center of the book. And it's in chapters 16 and 17. So it's not this list of do's and don'ts. Rather, rather it's this beautiful reality of what it looks like to come into God's presence, to be covered by him, to be, be covering over of your sins and the sins of his people so that they may enter into his presence. And they would call this Yom Kippur, or, or excuse like the Day of Atonement. And so at this moment, our, our little text sits just left of center in the crescendo of what it is to be covered by God's forgiveness. And so these are not just foundational stories for the people of Israel. This is the reminder, the constant reminder that God desires to restore dignity and order to his world through them. And if you recall, and this is something we do quite often here at Gateways, we just turn back to page one. If you recall, the world that God set humanity into was not a world riddled and littered with sin. It was beautiful. There was wholeness and completeness. And yet in the midst of that, humanity chose to declare their own rule, chose their own way, independent of God. And it led to this tragic like cleaving of God's space and human space of what we would call the heavens and earth. And so sin has like laid asunder. It's torn apart these two realities. And when we pick up in the story of Leviticus here in chapter 13, what was torn apart is starting to be woven back together by the grace of God. And so the Israelites, they have been delivered. The story that precedes this is the Exodus account. There's a whole book talking about God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. So, so now restoration is it's on its, it's on its way. They've been delivered from the human uh, oppression of Pharaoh, but um, they're at this interesting crossroads here in Leviticus. It's this, it's this crossroads of learning to trust God and to receive the gift of his presence, which is very much so like where we often find ourselves. It's this space of, of learning to trust God and to receive the gift of his presence. And we actually, we see this come to a head right at the end of the Exodus account. And so if you'll flip back, if you were in Leviticus 13, go to the end of the book of Exodus. This is Exodus chapter 40. And this is what we read in, in verse 33. It says, Moses finished the work. And just stop right there. Uh, what is the work? Well, you see, God, he wants to be with his people. And so he, he sets in motion this building of a space for him to occupy, for him to dwell amidst his people. It's called the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. Fun little Bible trivia fact, the first place that you see somebody filled with the spirit is in the construction of the temple. This guy named Bezalel, he's like a contractor. So just to bring that to your next little dinner party. That's, it's, it's great. So here, now, the, now Moses has finished the work. And, and then we read this, that then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So this is this beautiful moment. It's, it's God having taken up residency amongst his people. He doesn't just say that he wants to do it and then linger and maybe or maybe not do it. He says it and he follows through. But then, but then we go on and we read this in verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So God's very personal presence, the reality of heaven has now come and it just took up residence in the midst of the Israelites. And yet not Anyone, not even Moses can enter. Moses, who's God's like agent of deliverance from Pharaoh in Egypt, not even Moses can enter into God's presence because it is God's presence that is making his space seemingly inaccessible. 
So the natural question that we ought to be asking, and perhaps you already are, is how are the people of God supposed to receive the gift of God's presence if God's presence is the one barring them from his presence? It's a bit confusing, right? So uh, um, maybe a brief thought experiment to help us see this. Um, Think about the sun for a moment. We've actually been able to do this for the past couple days. Glory. Um, I went outside yesterday, short sleeve shirt. Come on, y'all. So think about the sun for a moment. On, on a clear summer day, if you go outside as, as you ought, um, what, what happens if you stand in the rays of the sun? What happens? Yeah, if you're like Dan and me, we got this lily white skin, like you will get burned. Inevitably, it will happen. Now, let me just ask, is the sun good? Yes, the sun is good. It's a gift. It's, it's a part of God's common grace. It's, it's like our global welfare is contingent upon the sun doing what the sun does. But if you get too close, what will happen? It'll burn you. If, if you get closer still and, and you don't come with appropriate measures, it will utterly consume you. If we were to use biblical language, language that we actually find in the book of Leviticus to describe what's happening here with the sun, we would call the sun holy. See, there's a reason that Moses stands outside the tent and he's unable to enter. It's because God's goodness, God's holiness is such that if you don't come correct, like that is aware of the reality of the sun, it can and will consume you. And now Yahweh, which is like the covenant name of God, anytime you see the capital L-O-R-D in your Old Testament, that's the, the, the English translation telling you this is the personal name of God. It's this language of intimacy. So Yahweh, the creator God, he's not aloof. He's not far off and distant. He knows who he is. And the end of, of Exodus is not the tale of some pernicious God who's like, a, like some um, scheming kid on a schoolyard, like, ha ha, you can't get me. Like, that's, that's not the case at all. And we, we know this because if you turn the page, or if um, your framing is uh, the same as my Bible, you just look to the next page, we actually read this in Leviticus 1.1. We see the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. See, this is the creator God himself calling out to his people because he is eager to make a way for his beloved to behold his goodness and to live into his presence. This is what the book of Leviticus is all about. See, Leviticus is like this giant DTR. It's like this define the relationship. What is it to come correct to God? Where do we stand with one another? And God is calling out from his presence and he is making a way. He's, he's setting the terms of what it is for his people to enter into his presence. And yet you may feel this tension bubbling up because as, as beautiful as that sounds, the claim itself can feel a bit at odds with that, uh, that first text we read over in Leviticus 13 where we read this, that this leprous person who has the disease, they shall wear torn clothes. They shall let the hair of their head hang loose. They shall cover their upper lip, crying out, unclean, unclean. Little commentary of the time, they they would say that this person could go within, like could not go within 50 feet of another Jewish citizen. And if they did, they would have to yell out, unclean, unclean, wherever they went. So they live alone, making their dwelling outside the camp. That, That feels a bit at odds with the God who is trying to draw his people near. And yet what's like pregnant in texts like Leviticus 13, it's this raw tension between God's holiness and a people intentionally and unintentionally marked by sin and death. And now this this doesn't alleviate the tension, but but notice this, notice this here in, in this verse he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. So is this permanent? No. No, no, but but you see, for the Israelites, the whole of life, 
That's like the clothes you wear, the food you eat, how you eat your food, like your care of the earth, your care of the refugee among you. All of life either orients you toward God or away from God, either toward life or toward death. And Leviticus 13 is is helping us to see that this is the distinction, that disease is a mark of death and decay, but it's not the end. So the rest of chapters 13 and 14 in Leviticus, they they present the means of being cleansed. It's this series of of washings and everything because it's about entering back into God's presence. It's, It's almost like this is how you apply the sunscreen. See, because death, is not the end in God's presence. This is what the book of Leviticus is all about. And what's beautiful here is that in the face of death, God is making a way forward to life. But part of that tension is that it it comes on his terms. And so if the washing and the waiting if those means of being cleansed, if they didn't take, that is if the disease persists, like there's still these boils, but leprosy is, is this disease that would disfigure you. There would be these boils that would pus and leak from your face. Your, your hands would often, you, would, you, would, you just couldn't feel anything. And so you would put your hand in a fire, you couldn't feel it. So you'd start to lose fingers, limbs, gangrene would set in. It would eventually be this death certificate. And so if the cleansing, if the washing didn't take, then the uncleanness would persist. And if the uncleanness persists, then so too the isolation. That is no physical touch, no warm embrace, like no shared meals, no common worship. You were utterly isolated outside the camp. And let me just be abundantly clear. Cleanliness is not an issue of sin. So this is not a sin issue. This is an access issue. It's it's an issue of being able to enter into God's presence because he's holy. And so he says to come to me, I want you to recognize that there is a a cost for coming to me and it's a cleansing. I I want you to come here. This is the tension of this. And so when we read in Mark chapter one and verse 40, that a leper came to him, that is Jesus imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. We are immediately thrust by Mark into the desperate pleas of an isolated man. This is a man who's been cut off from family, from relationship, from common worship, from his people. There's this, when babies are, um, when they're born and they don't receive physical touch, there's this um, designation, it's called failure to thrive. And, and there's these, been these CAT scans that have gone on about these, these young humans, these beautiful little humans who have not received physical contact. And there's like pockets, like holes in their brain, like just dark spots where they've not developed. So central is this physical touch to the human reality, to the human experience. And this man has been utterly isolated and yet... Right here, he comes to Jesus and what does Jesus say? Look in verse 41. He says, I will be clean. If you will, you can make me clean. I will be clean. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But first this question, what was it that gave this man the confidence to disregard the teachings of the Torah to disregard his heritage, like this act could have got him killed, could have been stoned for coming and pleading before a rabbi. So what was it that gave him the confidence to disregard all of that and approach Jesus? Well, for that, uh, turn with me to the beginning of our teaching text, Mark chapter one, starting in verse 21. And this is what we read. And they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And stop right there in verse 21. Now, I want you to, uh, if you're a note taker, take stock of these four words. Uh, Capernaum, Sabbath, synagogue, and teaching. 
Capernaum, Sabbath, synagogue, and teaching. Because with these four words, Mark is, he's gonna begin to build out how Jesus is the one redefining the terms of who and how we enter into God's presence. And in this story, it all starts in Capernaum. And Capernaum is this strategic uh, trade post. It's this fishing village, and it's, it's on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. And you'll see on the map behind me, like up, like this little peanut-sized body of water, right up there in the northwest corner. This would be a trade passage as people are crossing, headed towards the Mediterranean, heading further out east into the wilderness. And so right here is the crossroads. And this is where this event takes place. And more specifically, it, it takes, the story takes place in a synagogue on the Sabbath. And a synagogue for the, for the people of Israel was this holy day of rest. And throughout the week, like, like we learned last week, uh, children would come into the synagogue. They would learn the Torah. They would be taught in the ways of God. And then on the Sabbath, all of the community, all the people from the village would come together for this Sabbath gathering. And, and the contours of their gathering it would be, uh, it would start with prayer. And from prayer, there would be a reading from the Torah. And from the Torah, there would be a teaching, much like what we're doing right now. And then following the teaching, there would be this closing blessing over the community. And at this time, and in this space, it was primarily teaching focused. And this is what helps us to make sense of verse 22. Go there with me. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So what Jesus is doing is fairly regular for a rabbi. He's entering into the synagogue on the day of rest and he's doing what rabbis do. He's teaching. But Jesus' teaching stands far apart and above what the scribes and the other teachers of the law would do because what they would do is they would work through a passage, there would be a reading, and then what they would say is, this is what Rabbi Gamaliel says, this is what Rabbi Hillel says, this is what Rabbi so-and-so said, and so on and so forth. If you listen to a message from like a, a Jewish synagogue on the Sabbath, that's really what it is. is um, well, what do you say, Rabbi? So Jesus, this, this word here, has one who had authority. This is what Jesus teaches with. And this word in the Greek, it's exousia. This is where we get this word author or authority. And this it has this sense of out of the original stuff. Jesus is coming, not appealing to all these rabbis, but he's coming and he's saying, this is the truest true. He's speaking out of the original stuff as though he is the author. Hmm. Interesting move there, Jesus. See, astonishment captures many with this type of teaching, as, as it well, I think, would anybody who had an ear to hear that. But there's one who's more alarmed than astonished. Go to verse 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Just stop right there. What does it say about a people who gather together religiously and a man with an unclean spirit is in their midst, and yet he has no affront until Jesus shows up. So, so I think sometimes we can get so caught into the rhythms of what we do, so we show up because we um, have maybe a sense of obligation to come, or we have a feeling of guilt, and so maybe if we come from a Catholic tradition, there's this idea of penance, and so we're moving into spaces like this. There's something different about this Jesus something disruptive about the presence of God. And we see it right here. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And then check it. Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And if this feels like it just escalated a bit, it kind of did. You see, in Jesus' day, it was thought that if you could call a demon by name and maybe identify their rank, that somehow it gave you this tactical advantage over that unclean spirit so that you might be able to cast them out. This is what you would do, and this is what we would know in this practice of exorcism. But the impression that we get from Mark 
is that when Jesus shows up, this spirit, this unclean spirit feels so threatened that it powers up and it calls Jesus out, the Holy One of God. But Jesus literally tells the unclean spirit to shut up. Come out of the man, and he does. So if you have a vision of Jesus, I, I, I wanna speak, uh, specifically to men, I suppose, in the room, but it's, it's applicable to everybody. If you have a vision of Jesus that he is soft, if you have a vision of Jesus that, that in order to follow him, you need um, to, to um, be, I don't know what you would say, like in, in American culture, I, yeah, soft is the word that continues to come to mind. Um, let me just, in the name of Jesus, rebuke that because right here, we see something quite to the contrary. See, Jesus is described as meek or gentle. See, Jesus does this thing where he comes with grace and truth. And in the face of evil, in the face of something that's oppressing a human, Jesus stands strong. And so this is a picture of manliness. It's grace and truth. It's, it's gentleness yet strength. And so here we have Jesus telling this unclean spirit to shut up and come out of the man, and he does. And then check out what happens in the very next verse, verse 27. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all of the surrounding region of the Galilee. But Jesus is just getting started. You see in the next two little vignettes, these two little stories of Jesus, Jesus, he, he, we see him receiving the sick. He's, he's healing many. He's casting out demons. And in the case of Simon Peter's mother, his mother-in-law, we see Jesus reaching out and raising her up. And the imagery is going to, to like be found elsewhere throughout the gospel according to Mark. There's gonna be moments where Jesus, like some eight chapters later in Mark 9, he's gonna reach out and raise up a child who many think is dead. See, see Mark is helping to build an imprint of what it looks like when God's power shows up. It means that Jesus receives those who are hurting, those who are broken, those who are sick, and he moves towards them. He reaches out to them. And in this case, he raises up Simon Peter's mother-in-law. See, in this day, a fever was not symptomatic of your body trying to fight off an ailment. The fever was the thing, and it was often fatal. So, so you could also read this as saying, Simon Peter's mother on her deathbed, Jesus reaches and raises her up, and she begins to serve him. And this is not like, amen, that's the proper place of a woman. By no means. That, that's, that's not what's happening there at all. This is this idea of like full restoration and service to God. It's this idea of reorientation towards the way of Jesus. And it's always compelling to me that the women in the scriptures are the ones who do this. They do it promptly and they do it faithfully. Hmm. See, Jesus is just getting started. But we also have to take account that Jesus never reaches out without reaching up. And so in verse 35, this is what we read. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. You see, I don't, I don't wanna pretend that um, I understand like the stress or the strain of your day-to-day, -day, like what kind of practices you're trying to get to on time and make a meal or attend a meeting. or do, I don't, I don't wanna pretend that I know it. I, I know that our lives are full. But whatever your craziness looks like, whatever that feels like, and, and you know what it is far better than I do, can we just admit that it does not hold a flame to a day in the life of Jesus? Let's just do a little recap here if you're thinking, yeah, it does. Teaching with authority, out of the original stuff. Confronting an unclean spirit, telling him to shut up and uh, seeing a man be convulsed by that unclean spirit. And then uh, raising some people on the brink of death and uh, like helping them live into the full service of God. Uh, then more healing of the sick, more binding up of the broken, more casting out of the demons, more casting out of the unclean spirits. And, and then, uh, by the way, all under the pursuit of a whole town knocking on your door. This is the day in the life of Jesus. And so as the 
as like the intensity increases, Jesus steps back. And what's curious to me is, is, is just as soon as Jesus is blowing up, like he's trending on Twitter, he's gone viral, whatever you want to say, Jesus is the known entity in the region, which is, is not a bad thing, is it? So pay attention to Jesus' move here. When, he, when the crowds start to gather, he departs. And he goes into the desolate place because prayer is this place of intimacy with the Father. And so for Jesus, for him, he, 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 doesn't, he can't do the hustle. He can't do the bustle and do intimacy with the Father. And so if we're gonna be a community marked by the way of Jesus, we need to receive the rhythms of Jesus. And let's just, let's just see what, what comes from this moment. Go with me to verse 36. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on. Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all the Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. See, this, this place of prayer, the prayer is like a, as a space, a reality of intimacy with the Father. It reminds and affirms Jesus that he doesn't stand outside the house knocking like a stranger, hopeful that the father will let him in. He knows who he is. If you think back just like a few verses before, back in, in, in Mark 1.14, we see that this is the baptism of Jesus and God speaks identity and affirmation and love over his son. So Jesus is, is, is moving from his place of belovedness and it's yet, yet he goes to be affirmed of that. This is ongoing, continuing in the way of God. It's cultivating intimacy with the Father. And this is what Jesus is doing. He knows who he is, but he so wants to be with his Father because he's his beloved son. So it's not as though he stands on the threshold of the kingdom of God wondering, ah, Lord, like, what do you, what do you want me to do? What, what should I do? Should I just make it up? No, it's, it's Jesus knows precisely who he is and precisely what he's called to. So he knows that he needs to go to the next towns because he's gonna preach there also because it's why he came out. He came out to proclaim the liberating power of the good news of himself. This is why he came out, that the kingdom of God is at hand. And if I, I can, I just wanna leave, lean in here a little bit and just like a quick pastoral word. Some of us have been for the past month, two months now, um, been lingering on a decision. And that decision is coming to a head this week. And yet not once have we made time to actually appeal to the Father, to seek direction from him. There's, there's been now for the past season, maybe the past few years, we have been plagued by sickness and just like life has just been just, I don't even know how to describe it. Like it's as though all of your bones ache and your skin burns and you have like pain from the tip of your hair to the bottom of your feet and you just don't know what to do with yourself. And you are so tired. You are fed up of praying because you are praying and it feels like you're saying nothing to no one in no time. See, I, I come from a church tradition that laughed at the idea of God speaking to us today. And some of you come from a church tradition that used the quote unquote God says as a means to control, manipulate, and in some cases abuse people. So, so we all have stuff that we come to this, this idea of intimacy with the Father with. We all have baggage that we come there with. But let, us, let me just remind all of us, myself included, that we are not following a tradition. We are following Jesus. We are not following the traditions of man. We are following the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth. He is who we are following after. And so we look at his rhythms and we want to receive his rhythms because if he is what God's presence looks like breaking out into the world, my goodness, we want to be there. And so Jesus draws away from the hustle to be alone, uninterrupted with the Father. And I just, I, I submit to you, like I don't, I don't have this figured out, 
Um, we are all learning here together. But practically, let me, let me just, like, if you're like, okay, that sounds great, but tomorrow morning nothing's actually going to happen. So let me just give you a couple of practical steps. Find a quiet space. I'm not kidding. If it is a closet, I have a small human at home who's up quite early, so I have to beat him up. Not beat him up, but I have to awake. I have to rise before he rises. Ha ha. So, so could we just resolve it in our hearts right now? Like if, if you feel something stirring in your gut, like in your spirit, please do not not do something about that. Because you know what's happening? Every time that that little thing happens, have you ever been describe it? Oh, it's, it's, it's the Lord, it's the spirit, it's the stirring, it's the still small. However you want to describe it, every time you hear it, you sense it, you feel it and you do nothing, you are callousing yourself to the voice of God. You're callousing yourself to the way of God. And then you start asking, well, where is he? Why don't I hear, like, what's going on? Resolve it in your hearts just to, to find that space and then set your alarm 15 or 20 minutes earlier. This sounds like death, it will feel like it. Here's the kicker, get out of bed. For the longest time I thought, oh, I'll just, I'll, I'll pray my morning prayers in bed. And I think I get like, oh, my father, and, and then I'm just like, I'm out. So get out of bed, put your phone on airplane mode, set a timer, and then pour your heart out to God in prayer. And just say, well, Kyle, I actually don't know what to say. I'm, I'm not what you would call an intercessor or a prayer. I don't know what to do. Um, this is the best place to start. See, Paul, one of the followers of Jesus that we see writing a whole like, lot in the New Testament, he actually says in this letter to a little church in Rome, he says that when we don't have words, that the Spirit of God himself intercedes for us. When, when the groanings are too deep for words, the Spirit brings that to the Father. So you know where the best place to start in prayer is? I don't know what to say. And then you sit. And if you need to weep, then you weep. If you need to fidget for 15 minutes, God honors your fidgeting. Please don't not respond. If this is stirring in you, tomorrow. Not, t tomorrow is the day. Today is the day to resolve it in your heart that you would begin to build these rhythms into your life. Last week I said we need to stop trying to follow Jesus and we need to start training to follow Jesus. This is what I mean. And, and, I, and I get it. Like um, the, the busier that we get, the busier I get, the harder it is to guard this time. But it's fascinating. You can actually map you can chart like the, the moments in Jesus's life through the gospel accounts where like the more that the notoriety increased, the more that the intensity of the ministry increased, the more he drew away to be with the father. And then after those moments, it's like the feeding of the 5,000s, the raising of the dead. And, and I think that as a people who are addicted to busyness, who are addicted to work, who are addicted to technology, to technology, who strive for the praise of man, that the time is ripe for us, Gateway. The time is ripe for us to pursue the presence of God in the name of Jesus, to know why it is that God has called us out. And just to be very candid about this, like the trajectory of trust in Jesus, the trajectory of eternity which is the restoration of all things. It's, it's God's space completely consuming earth, our space. It's the heaven and the earth reunited. All of our days will be given to intimacy with the Father. And if you're like super introverted and you're like, whoa, that sounds a bit much. I need to retreat. I am actually withdrawing right now as we speak. Just consider this practice practice. And what do you have to lose? What do, you, what do you have to lose? 15 minutes? Are you kidding me? Do you know, like, how much time do we give to Instagram? I have gotten lost. Like, I, I've like, I will tell Jessica, I'm like, oh my gosh, I think I just wasted 20 minutes of my life. I, where did it go? This week, Lent starts. And on Ash Wednesday, we, uh, people are marked by ashes to remember that it is through suffering, through death, that then life comes. 
And so you say you, you don't know where to park. You don't actually don't have the morning. So every Thursday of Lent at, at our offices in at Gravitate downtown from 1130 to 1230, we're going to just do this time of praying, praying and fasting. So we're going to be praying for renewal in our city. We're going to be praying for the churches of this city. And um, we are going to essentially say no to food in that space. And I know that, that this is um, like if, if you are unable to do that, consider fasting something else other than food. Um, but we're saying that we want to so receive the rhythms of Jesus that we are carving out this space from every Thursday, 11.30 to 12.30 to pray for God to renew our hearts, to renew our church, to renew our city. So perhaps that is the practical step for you to take. You see, the, the, the scriptures say, that for those who trust Jesus, that, that he truly is the good news. He's the good news for the broken. He's, he's the good news for humanity in this world, that we are hidden with Christ in the heavenlies. And so this, this time of prayer, is, it's just living out of who you already are in Christ. It's, it's speaking from your position into your condition. That's all that it is. And the best place to start is to say, I don't know what to say. See, to pursue intimacy with the Father in prayer, it's to live out of who we already are in Christ, to trust that Jesus is the one redefining the terms. He's redefining the terms of how we enter to God's presence, and it's by grace. It's not your striving, it's not your earning, it's by grace. He's saying, I've made space so that you can come freely in. That is why a leper had the confidence to come and throw himself down before a rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth who's going throughout all the region of the Galilee proclaiming that the good news of the gospel, that the good news of the kingdom of God is at hand. And he doesn't just do it with his words, he does it with his deeds. And so we read this in verse 41. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. A rabbi would never touch a leper. It would be unheard of, unprecedented for this to happen. For starters, they thought it was a contagious disease. So, so um, forgive me if this is too much, um, but this would be the same as knowingly sharing a needle with an AIDS victim. This is the level of severity with which Jesus moves towards this man. It was shocking. It's unheard of. And to boot, the teachers of the law, the teachers of the Torah, they said if anybody touched someone with leprosy, they themselves became unclean. But is Jesus unclean? Is Jesus unclean? Is Jesus unclean? No. 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 Jesus touched the man and the man became clean. Do you see it? See, wherever Jesus goes, the presence of God goes there too. The man became clean. And if you've ever wondered, what, what does Jesus think about those who are on the margins of society? What, what does Jesus think about those who've been passed over and cast out by the religious elite? What does Jesus think about those who have been abused? Look no further. See, in Jesus' outstretched arm, we find the healing, of, the healing of God's presence set loose in the world. The unclean is made clean. And in God's presence, the leper is made healthy and whole and new. And back in Leviticus 1, it's God that calls out from the tent of meeting to draw his people in. But in Jesus, God's presence is set on the loose. So it used to be that God's presence was centrally located in the holy of holies, the innermost parts of the temple, and that, you, that only one person, one day a year, that is the Yom Kippur, back at that, like that climax moment of Leviticus 16 and 17, one person, the high priest would go in there one day a year, they would tie a bell around him and a leash, and, like, um, and he would go into the tent, he would go into the inner courts, he would go into this innermost place, the holy of holies, and he would offer up sacrifices to cover over the sins of the people and himself. And they put a bell on him so they knew he was still alive and they had a rope in case he touched the Ark of the Covenant and was struck dead so they could pull him out. But now, 
the power and presence of God is breaking out in Jesus. And immediately after Jesus cleanses this man, he charges him. He, he sternly like charges him and he says this, see that you say nothing to anyone? Hold on a second, Jesus. If you're the Messiah and you're trying to build a movement, what's with the shut-ups? What's with the don't tell anyone? And then to boot, Jesus says this. He says, show yourself to the priest and offer for you cleansing, for your cleansing, that what Moses commanded for a proof to them. See, I love this right here. See, right when you'd expect Jesus to go rogue, right when you'd expect Jesus to, to flip the script on all of the, 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 the Torah and the old covenant and just like bring out this, yes, the presence of God is here. And What's he do? Jesus turns right back to Leviticus 13 and 14 because Leviticus is all about what it looks like for God to receive his beloved people. And yet this leper Rather than abiding by Jesus's word, this now cleansed man goes and talks freely about Jesus so that Jesus can now no longer enter any town freely. He gets mobbed anywhere he goes. See, the portrait of Jesus is quite shocking in Mark. He is more than a rabbi. He's more than a good teacher. He extends grace to the outcast and to the unclean, but, and he never neglects the law. So Jesus is both the most inclusive person in human history and also the most integrous, the most complete person in human history because he receives all, all people with unfailing faithfulness to God's word. And so often when I've heard this passage preached, like the inflection point or the emphasis or the application of this is in Jesus's ministry, it's his power to make you clean. His power to make you who were once isolated in your sin and your death and your, your evil ways, he can make you clean. And is it true that we are isolated by sin? Yes. And is it true that Jesus makes a way forward? Yes. But is that all? Because I've also seen the emphasis is all about standing in your authority in Christ. So you stand in authority in Christ to cast out unclean spirits. And I think that that's true. I think that that's a reality that, that what is not seen, like uh, physicists will call them corks and stuff, but there's a reality of things we can't see in this spiritual realm. And so do I think that in Christ we have authority? Oh yeah. But what I want us to see today is that Jesus is the one who receives all without compromising his identity. Because I've also heard that God can't be in the presence of sin out of this passage. Speaking about God's holiness. But where's Jesus? Who reached out to the leper? Who received the sick? Who cast out the unclean spirits? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. So I couldn't, I couldn't shake it in my mind and I didn't know if this is, was a, a, I've wrestled with this, so I'm just gonna uh, go with it. But so much of this passage, like I'm thinking, who is the leper today? Who is it? And in the church, I think we've made the LGBTQIA community the leper. I, I think that so many in that community have been shunned and shamed and shut out of the church with no space to wrestle, with no grace, with no heartfelt pleas for integrity, with no love, with no tenderness, with no compassion. See, Jesus is at the very same time the most inclusive and the most morally rigorous teacher in human history. He makes the Pharisees and the scribes look like loose progressives. Because when Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters five through seven, he's gonna come and he's gonna say, yeah, 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 you know about adultery? Um, yeah, that, that's abhorrent. But you know what the root is? It's your heart. It's, it's the lust that's brooding there. And when that person goes by and you put your flesh on top of theirs or vice versa, and that is the root. And Jesus says, I'm here to dig out those dead roots because I wanna help you move towards life. And yet Jesus gets down from the temple or gets down from the mountain. Who does he go to see? He goes with the drunkards. He goes with the gluttons. He goes with the tax collectors. He goes with the prostitutes. He goes with the sinners. 
he goes to the lepers. So when I talk about receiving the rhythms of Jesus to have intimacy with the Father in prayer, the movement is not to you, it's through you towards the broken and the outcast. And now many in this room, we have been called and felt and lived in the reality of brokenness and feeling like the outcast. And Jesus has moved towards us with grace. And today that that invitation is the same. But, But I want you to hear this. Only people who are holy can call other people to holiness. You might say, well, that sounds a bit pious and religious, Kyle. Let me explain what I mean. In one sense, none of us can call anybody else to holiness. We have no, we have no ground to stand on in and of ourselves. And in another sense, in Christ, we have all of the ground to stand on. How we stand, how we position ourselves, like how we are in Christ is the reality how we move through love. So Jesus brings grace and he brings truth. He receives all without compromising the integrity of his identity as God's beloved son. This is our call, church. Because Gateway needs to be, this church needs to, must be the place where anybody and everybody can come and wrestle well, where we can disagree well, where there can be people who scream and yell and we say, I hear you. I hear you. I see you. I love you. And I, I, don't, I don't know about that. Help me, help me understand. How did you come to that conclusion? Like, what's that been like? These are the, like, so Jesus extends his arm. This is how we extend our arm. What does that feel like? We open up our tables to our neighbors who live, who fly different flags, who have a Warren sign or who wear a MAGA hat. We receive them. Why? Because Jesus received us. That's why. You see, um, there's two ways you can talk about the leper. One way is to say unclean made clean, but did you see what happened? Jesus sternly charged him, go, make the 90 plus mile trip down to Jerusalem and offer what Moses commanded as a proof for them. And what does he do? He dips and he starts talking about Jesus. So, the leper wants the gifts of Jesus without the obedience to Jesus. This is the tension. This is the tension. Will we be a people who just want the presence of God without obedience? Welcome to church, y'all. The reality is, is that we will fail so much and yet failure is a beautiful teacher. And so I want to learn from how Jesus has restored you and I want you to learn from how Jesus has restored me. And I know it's risky. And there's, sometimes there's no words. But in just a moment, we're, we're about to take the bread and the cup. You see, only someone who is holy can call someone else to be holy. Jesus, Jesus who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is like the sun coming to us and yet we don't get burned because he's cleansing us. See, The picture here of this silly little illustration is that you would be bright shining like the sun. And I think that that shines the brightest when those who have received grace extend grace. That is what this is. It's to say that our very life comes from Jesus. It's the declaration that in Jesus I am made whole. And it's a reminder that that is the truest of truths. This has been another episode of the Gateway Church Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.